Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm... <laughs> Start it again. I don't know. I kind of like this. It's a good energy. I don't know my own name. Start again. This, this, this is, is the first year anniversary. I can't start like this. I, I don't know. I think this feels pretty perfect. <laughs> Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look good on yourself. <laughs> Introduction to our one-year anniversary episode. That seems fitting. <laughs> where after 56 episodes, your host, Heather Michelle Lawler, forgets her own name and then steals my line. <laughs> Why? Well, you know what? I we think, were like, this is a good energy. Let's do to, it. <laughs> to your to your credit, I think that is the first time you have ever said our tagline correctly. Damn right. If I'm going to fuck up my name, I'm going to get the tagline right. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Welcome, everybody. It's been a freaking year. Uh, Holy crap. What a year it's been. <laughs> so, dear listener, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to us <laughs> and to you if you've been I listening. Think, I think this is an appropriate time to tell you we're now a year into this relationship and I feel like it's it's okay to tell you now. I love you. I love you too. We've had a few listeners from like the very beginning and I kind of want to give them a shout out. So it's uh it's been one whole year and I think uh I'm going to give like a special shout out to who I know was our very first like loyal listener because she reached out like after our first like week really. It was like after we dropped those first 5 episodes and was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with this." Um, and she's also a patron of ours, uh, Lindsay Wagner. And I know she still listens because she still randomly sends me messages. So, Lindsay, you're a badass. <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. You've started what is now uh, averaging well over 100 a week uh, listens. So yeah. let's keep that rolling. And uh, soon, Amazon and like uh, Maker's Mark will sponsor um, us. We will not be advertising for Amazon. No. I will happily advertise for Maker's Mark. But until <laughs> until Jeff Bezos stops Starts. his fucking moronic space race and start spending all of that money to fix the the problems on this planet on this planet we will not be advertising for well, his garbage business that i have ordered like 30 things from in the last month well yeah because we're all fucking confined to shit that's why he's made so much money and fuck amazon <laughs> uh oh yes also um but yeah so uh it's it's been a year <laughs> We like to go on tangents. Uh, that usually I'm the one going on the angry tangent. So I guess we're just flipping this whole episode. This whole thing is backwards and confusing, and it's backwards and confusing because this episode was actually recorded like two and a half months ago. Yep, it sure was. Well, the intro was well. This part of the intro was recorded like oh two weeks ago. 
the fun facts were and the actual story were recorded like two and a half months ago. Yeah. So it's like So we eh. recorded it backwards. We're doing this whole thing screwy, but it's because um we decided that for our one year anniversary, we would try to do an episode that we couldn't actually record together the week of the episode. Yep. Um, because we're traveling and we're both working. So that's very exciting. Yeah. You know, like getting paid to work, not um, on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Though we do have our loyal patrons. So please join us as a patron um, and get a half naked calendar of Ken. Uh, for more details on that, listen to old episodes. <laughs> Celebrate good times. Come on. Come on. Dancing in the streets. There's a party going on around here. There's a, a party. A celebration will last throughout the year. There's a party in my pants right here. And I am dancing without fear. That was my song. That was good. I liked it. <laughs> was that the end of the that the last rhyme you have? Uh, well, I mean, a party in your pants is cool, and it's good that it's not causing you fear because that would be wildly problematic. Yeah, I'm rocking my beef taco hard. That's good. <laughs> Dear listener, if this is your very first episode, what I would love for you to do is when you finish this episode, go back and listen to last week's episode, and then you will understand what I mean when I say... I really hope that Beef Taco catches on and that we get credit for it. Hell yeah. Start that Wikipedia Urban Dictionary page. If this isn't your first episode, then, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yep. So spread the word about Campfire Classics and Beef Tacos. Uh, Beef Taco Unite. Yeah. Um, So we have a... uh, Great, big, exciting episode and story in I'm store so for you. So excited for everyone to hear this. This this week, uh, it's it's a pretty good one, I think. Um, but we've got the little bits of usual business to attend to first. So, hey, Heather. Hey, Ken. Do we have a promo to share this week? We do indeed. Well, why don't you tell me about it? All right. It is for a wonderful podcast uh, that I have been acquainted with for some time called Spy Hards. Give it to me, baby. Spy Hard, Spy Hard. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hards Podcast. Every Tuesday, we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right. The knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Nobody does it better. I heard that. I heard that reference because that's one of my audition songs. (laughs) (laughs) That is a Bond theme. Well played. Love it. Uh, So that sounds like a ton of fun. And as you are listening to this episode, they just released a new episode the same day we did. So when you finished up here, 
If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, when you finish up here, go back and listen to last week's episode. And once you're done with that, go listen to Spy Hard's newest episode. Yeah, and they have tons of episodes. They've been around for a while. They're kicking butt. Also, um, that accent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the way he pronounces Hard. H. H. Woo! I've always found that kind of funny. <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes my beef taco tremble. <laughs> You can take that out. That might be offensive. <laughs> Does it melt the cheese? <laughs> it's like Velveeta up in here. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you have to cut everything. <laughs> this might be the worst promo I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> Go listen. <laughs> Go listen to Spy Hard. It melts the cheese on my beef taco. Yeah. Apparently the entire city is sweating. Do you yeah, hear that alarm going? Is there a tornado warning or something? I shit? don't know. What's <laughs> happening? All right. All right. The we, alarm. We took has a stopped. second. We took a second to wait for that alarm thing <laughs> to stop squealing, and it. You may still be able to hear it it's a little bit, but I think it's a little there. But better. I'm like. Um, and I gave myself the hiccups, which I have now taken a couple of deep breaths. Please go check out Spy Hard's podcast. Uh, they are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the places you get podcasts. Just click, just type Spy Hard's podcast, one word. Scott and Cam kicking butt and taking names. Tell them the beef tacos over at Campfire Classics sent you. Damn right. <laughs> uh, so now that we got that out of the way, should we jump into the thing we do? I think let's jump into the thing we do. You want to tell people what we do? Or yeah, so every week we take turns uh, reading stories that one of us has selected for the other to read sight unseen. And this week, two and a half months ago, I selected a story for Heather to read. So you're going to hear her attempt to read this story that she has never looked at before. But first, I'm going to give a few fun facts about the author. You guys, get ready. This one's a great freaking story so uh because we actually recorded this a couple of months ago i'm gonna go ahead and start the music fading in right here um and then i will slowly fade out talking as we travel back in time to two months ago and then you'll hear the episode Emma Magdolna Rosalia Maria Josefa Borbala Orxi de Orsi, better known as Baroness Orxi. Are you fucking Was a Is hung- that her actual name? That is her actual name. Oh my God. Oh, you know that bitch was rich. <laughs> was a Hungarian-born British novelist and play- playwright who is indirectly responsible for the existence of the MCU and the modern-day superhero. What? She is credited with establishing the hero with a secret identity trope in popular culture with her most famous work, The Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, 
shit. She wrote Scarlet Pimpernel. Yep. Which is a musical, y'all. It is. Uh... So today's fun facts are brought to you by the letters W for Wikipedia and K for kids.britannica.com because Kids Britannica is a thing, apparently. That's amazing. I, I Is it like all kids contributing or is it like... No, it's... It's, it's like aimed at children, like it's a safe space on the internet for kids to well, do research. Well, it's the Encyclopedia Britannica, but all of the entries are dumbed down, so kids and people with short attention spans can can so read them. all americans yeah. now okay so just so you know adults listening because kids if you're listening to this you t- shouldn't be um because fuck i swear a lot but uh <laughs> so uh yes brought to you by the letters w for wikipedia k for kids britannica and the number 82 our author's age when she died according to her obituary in the times that was also the year i was born um that 82. was not the year she died. It was 1882, was right? No, she was 82 years old when oh, she died. But I was born in 1982. Yes, so I'm not, saying, not in 1882. No, I was, well, or you, maybe I was. Are you 138 years old? I'm like the red woman from, Jesus. <laughs> from Game of Thrones. <laughs> anyway, that was my clever way of listing my sources. I liked it. Emma was born in Hungary in 1865 to a father who was a composer and a mother who was a countess. Well, composers are like artists are kind of like trashy. So she got, yeah, so she got her artistic influence from one side and her money from the other. So good for her. Good good job. (laughs) When she was young, her family left their home in Budapest for fear of being captured and beheaded by a peasant revolution. They landed briefly in Paris, where rich people were never uh, executed. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a choice. They've clearly never seen Les Mis. Um, in Paris, young Emma learned that she was a bad musician. Oh, good. I mean, at least she knows. The family then moved to London. I found no research to support this theory, but I assume they were forced to leave Paris out of shame because her piano playing was considered a social affront. So in London, 14-year-old Emma attended West London School of Art and then the Heatherly School of Fine Art, where she learned that she was also not a good painter. So she sucks at music. She sucks at painting. Yes. However, while she was at her fine art school, she did meet a young illustrator named Henry George Montague McLean Barstow. Goddamn aristocracy and their long-ass names. Montague. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Who was the son of an English clergyman. They got married in 1894 when she was 29, so I'm sure her parents were starting to get worried. I mean, she was basically dead. (laughs) Um, It was a happy marriage, which she described as, for close on half a century, one of perfect happiness and understanding of perfect friendship and communion of thought. Well, yeah. What happened after that? You're, you're two artists with boatloads of family money. Yeah. So it was probably a good marriage. I'm guessing well, someone just died. Yeah. After, after half, half a century, a century yeah. he I mean, died. That's a 50 year anniversary yeah. back in the 1800s. That's 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 impressive. Yeah. And they didn't get um, married till she was almost 30. She, till so she was almost 30. Yeah. That's well, because she died when she was 82. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it all comes around. Um. So I'm. Uh, I've I've been a little bit snarky about her and her money and mm-hmm. her because it's fun. But clearly, she is an important historical and literary figure. So please, Heather, and please, listener, don't let that put you off 
you know, <laughs> too <she's> much. She's rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know. So she started. She's also a woman, like a career woman in the 1800s. So just because you have money doesn't mean you got to like, you had talent. So yeah. she she paved a way in a world that didn't want women to have a voice really at that anything, point. Yeah. So fuck yes. So good for her. And her most famous character is like a superhero. Yeah. So badass woman. Although he is a superhero who goes around rescuing the aristocracy from the peasant revolution. Well, I mean, God, that was like her first memory. She's like six yeah. and they're trying to kill her and she doesn't even know why. She's like, I don't know what I did. Yeah. I just want to play my bad piano. <laughs> I don't know what money is. I just want to paint pictures. Why doesn't mom and dad ever hang my pictures on the refrigerator? <laughs> they terrify us. <laughs> she started writing soon after the birth of their child. Oh, wow. So late. So she was uh, solidly in her 30s when she started writing. Um, Damn, I'm she guessing had a geriatric pregnancy in like the 1800s, yeah. as they call it, which so is bullshit. I'm, I'm guessing she was just looking for something she could do without leaving the kid home alone, and she started writing. However, her first novel was a massive flop. Well, you know, you gotta, I mean, you start late, you gotta get some practice, yeah. you gotta earn your wings. Yeah. She, she clearly had trouble finding her artistic footing, bad at piano, bad at painting, Originally um, not great and at the writing. Not great success with her first novel. However, she did find a bit of a following for her detective short stories that she got published in magazines. Okay. She published short detective stories. Well, that was very much a thing. Like people like the short stories. Yeah. Um read it on your commute. So she uh she published a short story about an aristocrat who secretly went out in a mask and rescued people from the guillotine. And that Zorro? short story and that short story did pretty well so she and her husband adapted the character into a play called the scarlet, the scarlet pimpernel. pimpernel then she wrote the novelization of the play that she and her husband wrote together and submitted it to publishers while waiting for the decisions of these publishers the play was produced on the west end Initially, it drew small audiences, but the play ended up running for four years in London, broke many stage records at the time, eventually playing more than 2,000 performances and becoming one of the most popular shows ever staged in Britain. It was uh, translated and produced in several other countries and underwent multiple revivals. The theatrical success is what generated huge sales for her novel, The Scarlet Pimpernel. Hell yeah. Market um, yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she she did a lot more later in life. Uh, she continued writing and published tons of novels and short stories. Pimpernel became a, a series. Mm -hmm. um, she had very strong political views. She was a big believer in the system of the aristocracy. Surprise, surprise. Um but Ooh. I'm not I'm not going to go into that because I want to get into the story. Yeah, that and I don't want to talk about that because I want to like her. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of her surprisingly popular characters was a female detective named Molly Robertson Kirk. And you're going to be reading one of her stories. Um, a woman detective? Yeah. So uh, as, as I said, fair warning, this one is a little longer than the ones we've read before, but not. 
not like exponentially, just a little bit longer. I'm not reading like War and Peace here. No, okay. no, no, no. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. So uh, published in 1910 in the collection Lady Molly of Scotland Yard, this is The Nine Score Mystery. Let's, Let's start, start this the fire. fire. The Nine Score Mystery by Baroness Orksey. Well, you know, some say she is the daughter of a duke, others that she was born in the gutter, and that the handle has been soldered on her name in order to give her style and influence. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I could say a lot, of course, but my lips are sealed. As the poets say, our lips are sealed and I, the bangles. I'm like, I could say a lot. You know, this is very like, oh, I could gossip, but I'm not but that bitch. But I won't, bitch. unless you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> All through her successful career at the yard, she honored me with her friendship and confidence. But when she took me in partnership, as it were, she made me promise that I would never breathe a word of her private life. And this... I swore on my Bible oath, wish I may die, and all the rest of it. <laughs> so this I, is... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen, blah-dee-blah-dee-blah, yeah, okay. blah, you, you get the point. Yeah, Jesus, whatever. help me. <laughs> so this, is, this sounds like it's being written by her Watson. Yeah, it does. It's, it's very much sounds yeah. like yeah. that sort of setup. Yes, we always called her my lady from the moment that she was put at the head of our section and the chief called her Lady Molly in our presence. We of the female department are dreadfully snubbed by men. Well, you know what? Fucking something's, something's never, never changed. Change. And they need to. Jesus. Sorry. It's fucked, I'm, man. I, I like, you I'm, know, though, but you're aware. I'm doing, I'm doing the best I can, but like, you know. Us at the female department are dreadfully snubbed by men, though don't tell me that women have not ten times as much intuition as the blundering and sterner sex. <laughs> Fuck, I, like this I love this woman so much. <laughs> My firm belief is that we shouldn't have half so many undetected crimes if some of the so-called mysteries were put to the test of the feminine investigation. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, I just said that during our like our fun facts. I was like, if women ruled the world, it'd be... It'd be a very different place. It'd be place. a very different place for the better. Do you suppose for a moment, for instance that the truth about that extraordinary case in nine score would have ever come to light if the men alone had handled it <laughs> would any man have taken so bold a risk as lady molly did when no but i'm anticipating <laughs> oh i love her. i like this narrator i like the narrator a lot let me go back to that memorable morning when she came into my room in a wild state of agitation the chief says I may go down to nine score if I like, Mary, she said in a voice all a quiver with excitement. You, I ejaculated. <laughs> <laughs> we just got our first female ejaculation on the, uh, on the podcast. Yes. Yeah, that is a rare moment, y'all. It's a rare moment, but. It's a good female but ejaculation. But it's always nice when it happens. <laughs> it is. Everyone is happy. Everyone's happy. Like, no one's sad about it. 
The first time I saw also, that was on an episode of Sex in the City. <laughs> also, apparently, um, this isn't her Watson. This is her Hastings, yes. who is always ejaculating, ejaculating all over everything. All over the place. <laughs> well, and apparent her name is Mary. Mary. So it's Mary and Molly. Mary and Molly. I'm guessing Molly's a redhead. Oh, I, damn right. Because <laughs> she's trouble. I'm going to guess her auburn hair comes up at some point. Uh, but I'm so glad that Mary has ejaculated already. That's Good. very exciting for the story. Good. Well, and like, get get that first one done early. I mean, you got to get it out because now now her mind is clear. It's like in yeah. uh, something about Mary. You got to like clean the pipes before you go out on a first date so you can have your mind work. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Mary, uh, Molly, don't don't use her hair gel. <laughs> you, I ejaculated. What for? What for? What for? She repeated eagerly. Mary, don't you understand? It is the chance I have been waiting for, the chance of a lifetime. They are all desperate about this case up at the yard. The public is furious, and columns of sarcastic letters appear in the daily press. None of our men know what to do. They are all... men know what to do they are at their wits end and so this morning i went to the chief yes i queried eagerly for she had suddenly ceased speaking well never mind how i did it Uh uh-oh did she blow him whoa (laughs) she seduced the chief she's like i won't go into how i did it but he's gonna let me go now Well, never mind how I did it. I will tell you all about it on the way, for we have just got time to catch the 11 a.m. down to Canterbury. The chief says I may go and that I may take whom I like with me. He suggested one of the men, but somehow I feel that this is woman's work. And I'd rather have you marry than anyone. Hell yeah. I I am obsessed with this. I'm, I'm so happy. We will go over the preliminaries of the case together on the train, as I don't suppose that you have got them in your fingers' ends yet, and you have only just got time to put a few things together and meet me at the Charing Cross booking office in time for that eleven sharp. She was off before I could ask her any more questions, and anyhow, I was too flabbergasted (laughs) to say much. A murder case in the hands of the female department. (laughs) Such a thing had been unheard of until now, but I was all excited too. And you may be sure that I was at the station in good time. I'm imagining a little, um, like, once the door closes, a little like Drew Barrymore party dance. dance. Oh, yeah, which I just did as I was reading. Yeah. Fortunately, Lady Molly and I had a carriage to ourselves. It was a non-stop run to Canterbury, so we had plenty of time before us, and I was longing to know all about this case, you bet, since I was to have the honor of helping Lady Molly in it. The murder of Mary Nichols had actually been committed at Ash Court, a fine old mansion with... St- Got to get your tongue warmed up, your lips, your mouth. That's how Tip you earn that female ejaculation. Uh, <laughs> oh, 
I think that's how you earn that ejaculation. I'm sorry. That is how one earns. Yes, because it can come from both ends. It can, it can come, like... <laughs> can it? I bet it can. I was... I have heard that it can come from the other... Like, from the other place, too. <laughs> I have never experienced... But I've talked to plenty of humans that have come from there. Anyway... That's The murder of Mary Nichols had we'll actually... see. I'll be editing this when you're not around. <laughs> the murder of Mary Nichols had actually been committed at Ash Court, a fine old mansion which stands in the village of Ninescore. The court is surrounded by magnificently timbered grounds, the most fascinating portion of which is an island in the midst of a small pond, which is spanned by a tiny rustic bridge... The island is called the wilderness, in quotes, and is the furthermost end of the grounds, out of sight and earshot of the mansion itself. <laughs> that's where that's where it goes down in the wilderness. <laughs> that's where you go down out of earshot of other people. <laughs> or you shoot people, I guess. <laughs> Let's find out. Someone's <laughs> dead. I know. It was in this charming spot on the edge of the pond that the body of a girl was found on the 5th of February last. Yep. On this charming spot. Whoopsie. Dead babies on the charming island. <laughs> She's not a you know, baby. <laughs> she, well, I guess we don't know how old she is. We don't was. know how old she is. She said it's girl, not woman. Yeah, but that's true. That's true. So she's young. She's younger than her because I yeah. think that used to be the way, like, it was, she's a girl if she's younger than you or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what etiquette was. She, she said girl, I'm assuming under 18. Yeah. That's how I, I phrase it. All right. There's a body. Okay. I will spare you the horrible details of this gruesome discovery. Thank so, you. Yeah, right. Suffice it to say for the present that the unfortunate woman was lying on her face with the lower portion of her body on the small grass-covered embankment, and her head, arms, and shoulders sunk into the slime of the stagnant water just below. It sounds like she got drowned. Yeah, it sounds like the opening scene of an episode of Law & Order. Absolutely, and it's like, dun-dun. It was Timothy Coleman, one of the undergardeners at Ashcourt, who first made this appalling discovery. He had crossed the rustic bridge and traversed the little island in its entirety when he noticed something blue lying half in and half out of the water beyond. This also sounds like the beginning of uh, Twin Peaks. Yep. <laughs> Timothy is a stole. Timothy is a stolid. 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 <laughs> I mean, the next is unemotional kind of yokel. <laughs> so I can assume what it means, but stolid, calm, dependable, and showing little emotion or animation. Timothy is a stolid, unemotional kind of yokel, and once having ascertained that the object was a woman's body in a blue dress with white facings, he quickly stooped and tried to lift it out of the mud. Never touch the body! No! I mean, maybe he thought she was still alive. The use of the term yokel does not immediately not make me think terribly highly of his intelligence. Yeah. 
plus this does predate CSI Miami. So <laughs> So they um, just didn't know. And Law and Order. So and they didn't know. That's fair. I'm just saying, never toast never the body. Never toast the body. But here, even his stolidity gave way at the terrible sight which was revealed before him. That the woman, whoever she might be, had been brutally murdered was obvious. Her dress in front being stained with blood. But what was so awful that it even turned old Timothy sick with horror was that, owing to the head, arms and shoulders having apparently been in the slime for some time, they were in an advanced state of decomposition. Gross. Well, whatever. What I thought she was going to spare us the gruesome details. <laughs> well, Maybe that was sparing us the gruesome <laughs> I details. I'm, I'm sure it was. Well, whatever was necessary was immediately done, of course. Coleman went to get assistance from the lodge, and soon the police were on the scene and had removed the unfortunate victim's remains to the small local police station. Nine Score is a sleepy, out-of-the-way village, situated some seven miles from Canterbury and four from Sandwich. It's the Earl of Sandwich's town. Yum. Nom nom, we owe owe Sandwich so much. We really do. I hope they got a sandwich on their way through Sandwich. <laughs> I want to go to Sandwich. I think I've been there. I mean, I've been to Canterbury, so I, I bet we've been through that like when I was a kid or something, but I don't have memory. I wonder if there's a, like a subway <laughs> in Sandwich. I hope so. Or I hope that they're not allowed to be there. It's all local places that are like, we're the original. It's like Ray's Pizzas in New York, but they're like, we're the original Original Ray's. Shop. Ray's original. Yeah. The real Ray's. <laughs> Original sandwich. Sandwich. It's the Earl's shop. <laughs> I'm a descendant of the caterer of that great Earl, Earl of, of sandwich. sandwich. Moment when sandwich became the thing. All right, so we're in sandwich. Soon everyone in the place had heard that a terrible murder had been committed in the village, and all the details were already freely discussed at the Green Man. I'm guessing that's the pub, the pub. and not a human per- person. <laughs> Everyone just stands around this like alphabet looking person. It's like, yeah, wicked. <laughs> to begin with, everyone said that though the body itself might be practically unrecognizable, the bright blue serge dress with the white facings was unmistakable, as were the pearl and ruby ring and the red leather purse found by Inspector Measures close to the murdered woman's hand. Within two hours of Timothy Coleman's gruesome find, the identity of the unfortunate victim was firmly established as that of Mary Nichols, who lived with her sister Susan at two Elm Cottages in Nine Score Lane, almost opposite Ash Court. It was also known that when the police called at the address, they found the place locked and apparently uninhabited. It's starting to feel like one of those locked door mysteries. Mrs. Hooker... <laughs> Okay, so now we're at the brothel. Well, so now we have the hooker that appears in the beginning of oh, the yeah. episode of Law and Which Order. Is, I, I still want to play the dead hooker at the at the beginning of an episode of Law and Order. <laughs> Mrs. Hooker, who lived at number one next door, explained to Inspector Measures that Susan and Mary Nichols had left home about a fortnight ago and that she had not seen them since. Ooh. Uh-oh. It'll be a fortnight tomorrow, she said. I was just inside my front door calling to the cat to come in. Oh, she's a cat lady. Love this. And her name's Hooker. It was past seven o'clock. 
and as dark a night as ever you did see. You could hardly see your hand before your eyes, and there was a nasty damp drizzle coming from everywhere. Susan and Mary come out of their cottage. I couldn't rightly see Susan, but I heard Mary's voice quite distinct. She says, well, after hurry, she says, I thinkin' they might be going to do some shopping in the village. Calls out to them that I just heard the church clock strike seven, and that being Thursday, the early closing, they'd find all the shops shut in nine score. But they took no notice and walked off towards the village, and that's the last I ever did see them two. So glad I picked that accent because I like turned the page and it was written in that. Because that was the right accent. I I just had a feeling Mrs. Hooker was was, was probably that. a hooker. Further questioning among the village folk brought forth many curious details. It seems that Mary Nichols was a very flighty young woman, about whom there had already been quite a good deal of scandal. <gasps> she slept around. While Susan... So she is the dead hooker. Yep. It seems that Mary Nichols was a very flighty young woman, about whom there had already been quite a good deal of scandal... Susan, on the other hand, who was very sober and steady in her conduct, had chafed considerably under her younger sister's questionable reputation. <laughs> and according to Mrs. Hooker, many were the bitter quarrels which occurred between the two girls. Damn. Damn. These quarrels, it seems, had been especially violent within the last year whenever Mr. Lionel Lydgate called upon the cottage. He was a London gentleman, it appears, a young man about town. It afterward transpires, but he frequently stayed at Canterbury, where he had some friends, and on those occasions he would come over to Ninescore in a smart dog cart and take Mary out for drives. <laughs> this is a naughty story. <laughs> Mr. Lydgate is brother to Lord Edbrook, the multi-millionaire who was the recipient of birthday honors last year. <laughs> <laughs> I guess his birthday honor was being a lord <laughs> or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means. he I mean, inherited his million, like maybe he got his inheritance or something. Oh, like he came of age. He came of age and now he's Birthday honors, he came of age. That, may, that would make sense. Yeah. His lordship resides at Edbrook Castle, but he and his brother Lionel had rented Ash Court once or twice, as both were keen golfers, and sandwich links are very close by. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Get yourself a sandwich, hit the hit golf the course. Hit the golf course, grab a beer at the, at the Green Man. This is like, this is like. This is like, a place I want to hang out. Like, they got sandwiches, a pub, and a golf course. Yeah. That sounds nice. And dead and a, people. And a little pond. And murderers. With an island in it. And the dead body isn't there anymore. That's true. That's true. We, we don't need to know about that. There's a castle, too. Yeah, spare us the gruesome details. <laughs> Lord Edbrook, I may add, is a married man. Mr. Lionel Lydgate, on the other hand, is just engaged to Miss Marbury, daughter of one of the canons of Canterbury. Oh, well, if they're just engaged. They're just engaged. It's fine. I mean, honestly, back then, they probably never even met. They're just engaged. There's a decent chance, yeah. <laughs> they probably were both born, and they're like, yep, they're going to get married in 18 years. That shit went down. Damn aristocracy. They're probably cousins, too. These are the trappings of growing up with money. Yep. 
No wonder, therefore, that Susan Nichols strongly objected to her sister's name being still coupled with that of a young man far above in station, who moreover was about to marry a young lady of his own rank of life. Ah, uh, gotta love the class system. But Mary seemed not to care. She was a young woman who only liked fun and pleasure. And she shrugged her shoulders in public opinion. This is like the original Sex in the City right here. I was actually with murder. It's like Sex in the City meets Law and Order. This is like if any Jane Austen novel started with With a murder. Like if Pride and Prejudice started with one of the Bennett sisters dead. Yep. And I hope it's Lydia, because that bitch. I mean, everyone listening, you got to agree with me. Lydia is a fucking waste of space. And she goes and marries that fucker and gets everyone in trouble. And Mr. Darcy has to pay for the wedding. It's just it's some bullshit. All right. So <laughs> this this isn't the official um, secret code of this episode. But I would love to hear from you, listener. If you were allowed to murder one of the Bennett sisters consequence free consequence free you get to murder one of the Bennett sisters which one is it let us know I'm so excited I I mean I clearly didn't have to think about that (laughs) (laughs) but Mary seemed not to care she was a young woman who only liked fun and pleasure and she shrugged her shoulders at public opinion even though there were ugly rumors and at the parentage of a baby girl whom she herself had placed under the care of Mrs. Williams, a widow who lived in a somewhat isolated cottage at the end of Catterbury Road. Oh no! Is she the no, there's secret a baby. baby of a lo- is she the secret mother of a love child. Oh my god! It's turning into Game of Thrones now. <laughs> oh shit! This is like the best episode of Young and the Restless I've ever. Read. <laughs> this is fucking fabulous. Mary had told Mrs. Williams that the father of the child, who was her own brother, had died very suddenly, leaving the little one on her and Susan's hands, and as they couldn't look after it properly, they wished Mrs. Williams to have charge of it. To this, the latter readily agreed. The sum for the keep of the infant was decided upon, and thereafter Mary Nichols had come every week to see the little girl and always brought the money with her. Inspector Measures called upon Mrs. Williams, and certainly the worthy widow had a very startling sequel to relate to the above story. A fortnight tomorrow, explained Mrs. Williams to the inspector. A little after seven o'clock, Mary Nichols come running into my cottage. It was an awful sight, pitch dark and a nasty drizzle. Mary says to me she's in a great hurry. She's going up to London by train from Canterbury and and wants to say goodbye to the child. She seemed terribly excited and her clothes were very wet. I brings baby to her and she kisses it rather wild-like and says to me, You take great care of her, Mrs. Williams, she says. I may be gone some time. And then she puts the baby down and gives me two pounds. The child's keep for eight weeks. After which it appears, Mary once more said goodbye and ran out of the cottage. Mrs. Williams going as far as the front door with her. The night was very dark and she couldn't see if Mary was alone or not until presently she heard her voice saying tearfully, I had to kiss the baby. And the voice died out in the distance. On the way to Canterbury, 
Mrs. Williams said most empathetically. So far, you see, Inspector Measures was able to fix the departure of the two sisters, Nichols, from Nine Score on the night of January 23rd. Obviously, they left their cottage about seven, went to Mrs. Williams, where Suzanne remained outside while Mary went in to say goodbye to the child. After that, all traces of them seemed to have vanished. Whether they did go to Canterbury and caught the last up train, at what station they alighted, or when poor Mary came back, could not at present be discovered. According to the medical officer, the unfortunate girl must have been dead 12 or 13 days at the very least. As though the stagnant water may have accelerated the decomposition, the head could not have got into such an advanced state much under a fortnight. Fuck. At Canterbury Station, neither the booking clerk nor the porters could throw any light on the subject. Canterbury West is a busy station, and scores of passengers buy tickets and go through the barriers every day. It was impossible, therefore, to give any positive information about two young women who may or may have not traveled by the last up train on January 23rd. That is, a fortnight before. Wow, this is when credit cards became real handy. Right. And cell phones. You can actually trace that yeah, shit. Yeah, like credit cards and cell phones, like bounce things and stuff. One thing only was certain, whether Susan went to Canterbury and traveled by that up train or not, alone or with her sister, Mary had undoubtedly come back to Nine Score either the same night or the following day, since Timothy Coleman found her half-decomposed remains in the grounds of Ash Court a fortnight later. Yes, I'm so glad I keep getting that image in my head. <laughs> had she come back to meet her lover or what? And where was Susan now? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. From the first, therefore, you see, there was a great element of mystery about the whole case, and it was only natural that the local police should feel that, unless something more definite came out in the inquest, they would like to have the assistance of some of the fellows at the yard. Fucking men. So the preliminary notes were sent up to London, and some of them drifted into our hands. Lady Molly was deeply interested in them at first, and my firm belief is that she simply worried the chief into allowing her to go down to nine score and see what she could do. Part two. At first, it was understood that Lady Molly should only go down to Canterbury after the inquest, if the local police still felt that they were in want of assistance from London. But nothing was farther from my lady's intentions than to wait until then. <laughs> yeah, nasty woman. Well-behaved women rarely, rarely make, history. make history. I'm not going to miss the first act of a romantic drama, she said to me, <laughs> just as our train steamed into Canterbury Station. Pick up your bag, Mary. We're going to tramp it to nine school. Two lady artists on a sketching tour, remember? And we'll find lodging in the village, I dare say. Ooh, they're undercover. Ooh, they're undercover. I love it. <laughs> oh, this is exciting. We had some lunch in Canterbury, and then we started to walk the six and a half miles to nine score, carrying our bags. We put up at one of the cottages where the legend apartments for singles respectable lady or gentleman had hospitably invited us to enter <laughs> yep 
And at 8 o'clock the next morning, we found our way to the local police station where the inquest was to take place. Such a funny little place, you know. Just a cottage converted for official use. (laughs) And the small room packed to its utmost holding capacity. The entire able-bodied population of the neighborhood had, I verily believe, congregated in these 10 cubic yards of stuffy atmosphere. Oh, these rural these, yokels are these, so uh, adorable. This is so like Twin Peaks. I mean, it's very like, it's very uh, when uh, he first shows up and he's like, oh, this is quaint. And then he kind of falls in love with yeah. it. I don't think they're going to fall in love with it. Inspector Measures, apprised by the chief of our arrival, had reserved two good places for us well in sight of witnesses, coroner and jury. The room was insupportably close, but I assure you that neither Lady Molly nor I thought much about our comfort then. We were terribly interested. From the onset, the case seemed, as it were, to wrap itself more and more in its mantle of impenetrable mystery. There was precious little in the way of clues, only that awful intuition, that dark, unspoken suspicion with regard to one particular man's guilt, which one could feel hovering in the minds of all those present. Neither the police nor Timothy Coleman had anything to add to what was already known. The ring and purse were produced, also the dress worn by the murdered woman— All were sworn to by several of the witnesses as having been the property of Mary Nichols. Timothy, on being closely questioned, said that, in his opinion, the girl's body had been pushed into the mud, as the head was absolutely embedded in it, and he didn't see how she could have fallen like that. Medical evidence was repeated. It was as uncertain, as vague as before— Owing to the state of the head and the neck, it was impossible to ascertain by what means the death blow had been dealt. The doctor repeated his statement that the unfortunate girl must have been dead quite a fortnight. The body was discovered on February 5th. A fortnight before that would have been on or after January 23rd. Okay. So that lines up. The caretaker who lived at the lodge at Ashcourt could also throw but little light to the mysterious event. Neither he nor any member of his family had seen or heard anything to arouse their suspicions. Against that, he explained that the wilderness where the murder was committed. <laughs> I love that this is the place. The wilderness. It's in quotations every time. Where the murder was committed is situated some 200 yards from the lodge, with the mansion and flower garden lying between. Replying to a question put to him by a juryman, he said that the portion of the grounds is only divided off from Nine Score Lane by a low brick wall, which has a door in it, opening into the lane almost opposite Elm Cottages. He added that the mansion had been empty for over a year and that he succeeded the last man, who died about 12 months ago. Mr. Lydgate had not been down for golf since witness had been in charge. Okay, so the new guy that took over 12 months ago has not seen... So Mr. Lydgate has not been there in a year. Hasn't been around since this new guy took over. Took over, so it's been a year. Which, you know, if there's a baby and all that... I'm just saying. It would be useless to recapitulate all that the various witnesses had already told the police and were now prepared to swear to. 
The private life the two sisters, Nichols, had gone into a full length as much, at least as were publicly known. But you know what village folk are. <laughs> what a bitch! Ah, so much cold! What a bitch! Oh, man! They're like, but you know how people talk in the villages. And honestly, they ain't wrong. <laughs> Everybody I know from a small town. Everybody knows everybody's business. You know how small town folk are. But you know what village folk are. Except when there is a bit of scandal and gossip, they know precious little about one another's inner lives. Oh, I think that's a lie. Or I think that's not true. She's saying, but you know how village folk are. Unless there's some scandal and gossip, they don't actually know anything about each other. Well, I, well, think- I guess what they, they just make up, like... I think, they don't I think actually the know is, anything yeah. about each other. It's all gossip. They they just they're always in each other's business when it comes to the juicy shit. But they don't actually like know what their favorite color is yeah. and what their favorite like TV show is or you know. Yeah. And there's no TV at this point, but you know that kind of stuff. They don't know any of their personal details. They just know like when they came home late and they got in an argument with their husband or something. And let's be real, there's always gossip and scandal. Damn right. TMZ knows. <laughs> the two girls appeared to be very comfortably off. Mary was always smartly dressed, and the baby girl whom she had placed with Mrs. Williams' charge had plenty of good and expensive clothes, whilst her keep, five shillings a week, was paid with unfailing regularity. What seemed certain, however, was that they did not get on well together, <laughs> that Susan violently objected to Mary's association with Mr. Lydgate, and that recently she had spoken to the vicar asking him to try to persuade her sister to not go away from nine score altogether, so as to break entirely with the past. The Reverend Octavius Ludlow. <laughs> yes. yes. The Reverend Octavius Ludlow, vicar of nine score, seemed thereupon to have a little with Mary on the subject, suggesting that she should accept a good situation in London. But, continued the reverend gentleman, I didn't make much impression on her. All she replied to me was that she certainly need never go into service, as she had a good income of her own and could obtain five thousand pounds or more quite easily at any time if she choose. "'Did you mention Mr. Lydgate's name to her at all?' asked the coroner. "'Yes, I did,' said the vicar, after a slight hesitation. "'Well, what was her attitude then?' "'I'm afraid she laughed,' replied the <laughs> Reverend Octavius primly, "'and said very picturesquely, "'if somewhat ungrammatically the some folks didn't know what they was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fucking uh, Dr. Doolittle, not, not Dr. Doolittle. Um, Henry Higgins. Henry Higgins. Rex Harrison played both of them. So, uh, Said very, what is it? Very picturesquely, <laughs> if ungra- somewhat ungrammatically. Some, some folks didn't know what they, they was talking Talking about. about. <laughs> well, I also love that she just dropped, learn how to speak. I also love that she just dropped what five thousand pounds that she Does could she get a hold get of. Whatever she wants, you know she fucking Mister Lydgate. <laughs> 
Or blackmailing. Well, probably blackmailing, so she doesn't tell also, his parents and his fiance that they have a baby together. All very indefinite, you see. Nothing to get a hold of, no motive suggested, beyond a very vague suspicion, perhaps, of blackmail. Yeah. To account I could be I could be a police officer we, in the a, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. We'd be a good team. Because, you know, we Every time be, we read these mysteries, we're always like saying what they're about to say. And we it's could like, be we could be a detective duo. We'd, we what would our names duo? be? Would we just be Ken and Heather? I think so. <laughs> Campfire Classics Investigations. Campfire Classics Detective Agency. Yeah. CCDA. CCDA. We're the CCDA, bitches. <laughs> and we would we'd we'd take turns being um Hastings and Poirot. That's true. Yeah, because And every time Every time you pull an awesome move to solve a case, I'll be the one who writes down the story and tells everyone. And every time I pull an awesome move to solve a case, you'll be the one who writes down the story and tells everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into it. Of course. And we'll have our office cat line. Mine will invariably be turned into a... Musical. Very lengthy, overly wordy play or musical of some kind. And... Yours will be something that people actually read. Uh, mine will be a bunch of fart and sex jokes. <laughs> isn't isn't that what I just said? <laughs> yes. My my show is on like Comedy Central or like late night HBO. Yours is on Discovery or like the new buddy comedy coming to you on Comedy Central and Discovery Channel. Get ready every are other you, week. Are you confused? So are we. CCD is Comedy Central Discovery, Discovery <laughs> and Campfire Classics Detectives. Yeah! Woo woo! Check that shit out. It's like we planned it and we absolutely did not. <laughs> All right, uh, back to the case. Where are we? Blah, dun, I've dun, dun. Blackmail. Perhaps uh, a blackmail to account for a brutal crime. I must not, however, forget to tell you of the two other facts which came to light in the course of the extraordinary inquest. Though at the time, these facts seemed of wonderful moment of the elucidation of the... Elucidation? Yes. Verb. To elucidate is to make something clear or to explain. Ooh. Let me elucidate. <clears throat> Please. By finishing the sentence. <laughs> Though at the time, these facts seemed of wonderful moment for the elucidation of the mystery. They only helped ultimately to plunge the whole case into darkness still more impenetrable than before. Well, so they, shit. They made it even more confusing. I thought that was going to be helpful, but instead, fuck. Damn it. I am alluding firstly to the deposition of James Franklin a carter in the employ of one of the local farmers. This man stated that about half past six on the same night, January 23rd, he was walking along Ninescore Lane leading his horse and cart as the night was indeed pitch dark. Just as he came somewhere near Elm Cottages, he heard a man's voice saying in a kind of hoarse whisper, "'Open the door, can't you? It's as dark as blazes!' 
Blazes aren't dark. Blazes, this guy's not good. He's not smart. That's a bad <laughs> metaphor. It's not. Bla- blazes are blazes are fire, so it's like a torch. Fu- they'd, be, they'd be pretty fucking bright. It's a British thing. It must be a British thing. Stupid British aristocracy. <laughs> Don't even fucking mixed metaphors. Why can't the English learn how to speak? <laughs> it's a terrible idiom. <laughs> then a pause, after which the same voice added, Mary, where the dickens are you? Whereupon a girl's voice replied, All right, I'm coming. James Franklin heard nothing more after that, nor did he see anything in the gloom. With the stolidity peculiar to the Kentish peasantry. What a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the most British sentences I've ever read. With the stolidity stolidity peculiar to the peasantry. peasantry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh my God, is that what that says? With the stolidity peculiar to the Kentish peasantry. Toy, 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 toy. He thought no more of this until the day he had heard that Mary Nichols had been murdered. In other words, like a good Brit, he was minding his own business. Then he voluntarily came forward and told his story to the police. Now, when he was closely questioned, he was quite unable to say whether these voices proceeded from that side of the lane where stands Elm Cottages or from the other side, which is edged by the low brick wall. Finally, Inspector Measures, who really showed an extraordinary sense of what was dramatic, (laughs) here produced a document which he had reserved for the last. This was a piece of paper which he had found in the red leather purse already mentioned, and which at first had not been thought very important, as the writing was identified by several people as that of the deceased and consisted merely of a series of dates and hours scribbled in pencil on a scrap of notepaper. Yeah, when you find a dead body, a list of times and places that they might be meeting people is never important. Very important, yeah. Like, again, I guess these people have not seen crime dramas. Never never seen an episode of Law & Order. But suddenly these dates had assumed a weird and terrible significance. Two of them, at least. December 26th and January 1st, followed by 10 a.m., were days on which Mr. Lydgate had come over to Nine Score and took Mary for drives. One of the two witnesses swore to this positively. Both dates had been local meets to the Harriers, to which other folk from the village had gone Harriers. Harrier. Any of a breed of hunting dogs resembling a small English foxhound and originally bred for hunting rabbits. So these days were days of hunts. Hunts. Like fox hunts. Meeting of the Harriers. Okay. So he probably told his fiance and his parents he was going down for the hunt. The hunt was the excuse to come come and go for a drive. Okay. Like that. All right. The other dates, there were six altogether, were more or less vague. One, Mrs. Hooker remembered as being coincident with a day Mary Nichols had spent away from home. But the last date, scribbled in the same handwriting, was January 23rd, and below it the hour, 6 p.m. Nope. The coroner now adjourned the inquest. An explanation for Mr. Lionel Lydgate had become imperative. Part three. Dunk, dunk. Yeah. (laughs) 
This is it, it is a uh, uh, it's like the original Law and Order where there's a lot of courtroom time. Public excitement had now reached a very high pitch. It was no longer a case of mere local interest. The country inns all around the immediate neighborhoods were packed with visitors from London, artists, journalists, dramatists, and actor managers, whilst the hotels and fly profiteers of the Canterbury were doing a roaring trade. Wow. Why are the actors managers there? <laughs> like, I guess everybody's gonna... vying to play the dead hooker at the beginning of the episode. Me, me, cast me. <laughs> Well, I guess because there's no TV, so this is like the O.J. Simpson trial, but like. So all of the actors are showing up and watching what the investigators and witnesses do. So they can be in the So play. that they can go the next town over and reenact the interviews. In their, like, their, wagon, in their wagon shows. Yeah. This is Law and Order on the Wagon Show. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Good pick. I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> Certain facts and one vivid picture stood out clearly before the thoughtful mind in the midst of a chaos of conflicting and irrelevant evidence. The picture was that of the two women tramping in the wet and pitch-dark night towards Canterbury. Beyond that, everything was a blur. When did Mary Nichols come back to Ninescore and why? To keep an appointment made with Lionel Lydgate? It was openly whispered, but... That appointment, if the rough notes were interpreted rightly, was for the very day on which she and her sister went away from home. A man's voice called to her at half past six, certainly, and she replied to it. Franklin, the charter, Carter, Franklin, the Carter, heard her, but half an hour afterwards, Mrs. Hooker heard her voice when she left home with her sister, and she visited Mrs. Williams after that. The only theory compatible with all of this was, of course, that Mary merely accompanied Susan part of the way to Canterbury, then went back to meet her lover, who enticed her into the deserted grounds of Ash Court and there murdered her. The motive was not far to seek. Mr. Lionel Lydgate, about to marry, wished to silence forever a voice that threatened to be unpleasantly persistent in its demands for money and in its threats of scandal. But there was one great argument against that theory, the disappearance of Susan Nichols. She had been extensively advertised for. The murder of her sister was published, broadcast in every newspaper in the United Kingdom. She could not be ignorant of it. And above all, she hated Mr. Lydgate. Why did she not come and add weight of her testimony against him? Indeed, <laughs> if he was guilty. It's like, bitch, uh, like, this is your chance. Take that, take that man down. And if Mr. Lydgate was innocent, then where was the criminal? And why had Susan Nichols disappeared? Why? 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 <laughs> it's three times. And I was taught as an actor, I had to make it different every time. Oh, I, th I think you did excellently. Thank you. That's my master's degree. <laughs> Master's degree. Actually, nothing. I learned that at your, AMDA. Your professors at AMDA would be learned, proud of that. I read. learned that at AMDA. Like, I'm gonna give them a shout out where they, they, they. I didn't. I didn't take a ton. Like, but I will take that. I got that for sure. I'm trying to think. Like, um, I know Elaine Petrikov would approve of that read. Elaine, if you're listening, and we know you are. <laughs> 
She taught us both. So, I mean, at different times, but. Well, the next day would show. Mr. Lionel Lydgate had been cited by the police to give evidence at the adjourned inquest. Good looking, very athletic, and obviously frightfully upset and nervous. Okay, that was read in the weird tone of voice once it went to the other ways. It was like, good looking. Yeah. Very athletic. Yeah. And obviously frightfully upset and nervous. Oh, no. I like that turn. <laughs> yeah, there it is. There it is. There it is. He entered the little courtroom accompanied by his solicitor. That is a lawyer for um, you Americans listening. Yeah. Just before the coroner and jury took their seats, he looked keenly at Lady Molly as he sat down. Oh, he's making eyes at the lady detective who's dressed as a painter. And from the expression... She's the court sketch artist. <laughs> she's doing the, like, the cartoons in the New Yorker. <laughs> the funny like images like in like the movie Legally Blonde where there's like... Ah. He looked keenly at Lady Molly as he sat down, and from the expression on his face, I guessed that he was much puzzled to know who she was. He was the first witness called. Manfully and clearly, he gave a concise account of his association with the deceased. Well, she was pretty and amusing, he said. I liked to take her out when I was in the neighborhood. It was no trouble to me. There was no harm in her, whatever the village gossips might say. I know she had been in trouble, as they say, but that had nothing to do with me. It wasn't for me to be hard on a girl. <laughs> so he's gay. I, I was just going to say, I, I think he just confessed to being in the Oscar Wilde way. In the Oscar Wilde way. It wasn't for him to be hard on a girl. Now, on a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't for me to be hard on a girl. <laughs> and I fancy that she had been very badly treated by some scoundrel. Here he was hard-pressed by the coroner, who wished him to explain what he meant. But Mr. Lydgate turned obstinate, and to every leading question he replied solidly and very empathetically, I don't know who it was. It had nothing to do with me. But I was very sorry for the girl because of everyone turning against her, including her sister. And I tried to give her a little pleasure when I could. I'll bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> that was all right, very sympathetically told. The public quite liked this pleasing specimen of English cricket, golf, and football loving manhood. <laughs> oh, <shit! laughs> he is like uh if Eli Manning got accused of a crime. <laughs> like like, come on, it's a he's, Manning brother. He's whatever he's whatever the English version of the all-American boy next door Subsequently, is. Subsequently, Mr. Lydgate admitted meeting Mary on December 26th and January 1st, but he swore most emphatically that that was the last time he ever saw her. But the 23rd of January, here insinuated the coroner, you made an appointment with the deceased then? Certainly not, he replied. But you met her on that day. 
Most emphatically, no, he replied. I love that they used emphatically to describe his response, and then he actually uses, uses it emphatically. in his response. That's amazing. Well, she's she's not Shakespeare. She isn't inventing new words. No, but I'm, emphatically is appropriate. That's good so character she use telling. That, yeah. mean, that also proves that um, our detective Mary, right, is the name of the narrator. Is the also the name of the victim, which is unsettling. Um, yes. Apparently, uh, Duchess, uh, Countess, Baroness, Baroness uh, Oxy only knows a few names. Only knows a couple <laughs> of names. Most emphatically, no, he replied quietly. I went down to Edbrook Castle, my brother's place in Lincolnshire, on the 20th of last month and only just got back to town about three days ago. You swear to that, Mr. Lydgate, asked the coroner. I do indeed, and there are a score of witnesses to bear me out. The family, the house party, the servants. <laughs> he tried to dominate his own ex... <laughs> he tried to dominate his own excitement? <laughs> oh, hot. <laughs> wow. Well, damn. Um, could I recommend holding a notebook in front of you? <laughs> Well, hopefully, like, if the courtroom is anything like an American courtroom, he's, like, sitting behind something. But I think in British courtrooms, they stand. He tried to dominate his own excitement. I suppose, poor man, he had only just realized that certain horrible suspicions had been resting upon him. And that well, made he, him excited? His solicitor pacified him. and wow. present Full-service solicitor. <laughs> Wait. His solicitor pacified him. And presently he sat down. <laughs> Getting a little action behind the desk, I see. Uh, all right. He paid the solicitor extra. <laughs> Whilst I must say that everyone there present was relieved at the thought that the handsome young athlete was not a murderer after Because nobody wants it to be the handsome young athlete. To look at him, it certainly seemed preposterous. But then, of course, there was the deadlock. And as there were no more witnesses to be heard, no new facts to elucidate, the jury returned the usual verdict against some person or persons unknown. And we, the keenly interested spectators, were left to face the problem. Who murdered Mary Nichols? And where was her sister Susan? Dung dung. Part four. After the verdict, we found our way back to our lodgings. Now it's okay, so Lady Molly is about to take charge. This is about to go down. Lady Molly tramped along silently with that deep furrow between her brows, which I knew meant that she was deep in thought. Now I'll have some tea, I said with a sigh of relief as soon as we entered the cottage door. No, you won't, <laughs> replied my lady dryly. I am going to write out a telegram, and we'll go straight to Canterbury and send it from there. To Canterbury, I gasped. Two hours walk at least, for I don't suppose we can get a trap, and it is past three o'clock. Why not send your telegram from nine score? Mary, you're stupid. <laughs> Straight up said it. Like, poor 
Poirot is at least nice about it, and so is Sherlock, honestly. <laughs> Neither of them are ever nice about it. They just say it they in are, a... <laughs> They are just both enough smarter than their sidekick that they say it in a way that neither kind of Hastings or their, Watson doesn't understand. Whereas Mary's like, I don't want it to go over her head. I want her to know exactly what I'm thinking. You Mary, stupid you bitch. are stupid. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Mary, you are stupid, was all the reply I got. <laughs> she wrote out two telegrams, one of which was at least three dozen words long, and once more calling me to come along, we set out for Canterbury. I was tealess, cross, and puzzled. That's a rough day, man. <laughs> no tea. Someone called me stupid, and I'm now walking a really long way to Canterbury. Oh, oh I'm obsessed. I love this narrator so much. Lady Molly was alert, cheerful, and irritatingly active. I hate those people, especially any time before 11 o'clock in the morning. So me. <laughs> you are rarely alert, cheerful, and irritatingly active before 11 a.m. Because I usually wake up at 10. <laughs> and then sit and send out tweets about this podcast for an hour or an yes. hour and a half. Yes. We reached the first telegraph office a little before five. My lady sent the telegram without condescending to tell me anything of its destination or contents. Then she took me to the castle hotel and graciously offered me tea. About damn time, <laughs> I said. I like to think they didn't speak a word the entire time. Like, Mary's just like trotting behind like, I'm sorry, I'm stupid. And Molly's like, I know who killed the girl. Like, it's just like... Except in my head, Mary isn't going, I'm sorry, I'm stupid. Mary's going, you fucking bitch, get me my goddamn tea or I swear to Christ, I will strangle you in your sleep tonight. I need my coffee now. <laughs> I haven't had any caffeine. She's hangry because tea in England also means food. I've, I've not had like... my tea and scones yes. today and you know how I get. May I be allowed to inquire whether you propose tramping back to nine score tonight, I asked with a slight touch of sarcasm as I really <laughs> felt put out. Yes, bitch. Yeah. Yes, there's sarcasm in this. This is why women are amazing. All right. No, Mary, she replied, quite munching a bit of Sally Lunn. Whoa. What, what hotel are they at? Apparently it rents by the hour. Munching, and it's it's capitalized, Sally Lunn. What is Sally Lunn? I'm hoping it's a kind of biscuit. <laughs> or I'm hoping it's not. It's got to be. Sally Lunn bread is the first thing that pops there up. There it is. When that's, I... that's what it is. Because tea comes with food, like little sandwiches and stuff. So she's munching on some bread, not on the wilderness. <laughs> I have engaged a couple of rooms at this hotel and wired the chief that any message will find us here tomorrow morning. After that, there was nothing for it but quietude, patience, and finally supper and bed. The next morning, my lady walked into my room before I had finished dressing. She had a newspaper in her hand and threw it down on the bed as she said calmly, It was in the evening paper all right last night. 
I think we shall be in time. No use asking her what it meant. It was easier to pick up the paper, which I did. It was a late edition of one of the leading London evening shockers, and at once the front page with its startling headline attracted my attention. The Nine Score Mystery, Mary Nichols' Baby Dying. Then below that, a short paragraph. We regret to learn that the little baby daughter of the unfortunate girl who was murdered recently at Ashcourt Ninescore, Kent, under such terrible and mysterious circumstances, is very seriously ill at the cottage of Mrs. Williams, in whose charge she is. The local doctor who visited her today declares that she cannot last more than a few hours. At the time of going to press, the nature of the child's complaint was not known to our special representative at nine score. What does this mean? I gasped. But before she could reply, there was a knock at the door. A telegram for Miss Garnard, said the voice of the hall porter. Quick, Mary, said Lady Molly eagerly. I told the chief and also measures to wire here and to you. The telegram turned out to have come from nine score and was signed measures. Lady Molly read it out loud. Mary Nichols arrived here this morning, detained at the station. Come at once. She's back. <gasps> the sister's back. No, that's the dead girl. <gasps> it was her sister the whole time. See, I... Yes! It was her sister the whole time. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, fuck. Mary Nichols, I don't understand. What could, could, is all I could contrive to say. But she only replied, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> she did it. Be, so she sent a telegram saying that the baby's dying. To trick to Mary. To trick Mary to come back because she knows she loves the baby. Oh, my God. This is so good. Oh, that's dope. Keep going. This is so good. I knew it. I knew it. Oh, Mary, what a wonderful thing in human nature. And how I thank heaven that gave me a knowledge of it. She made me get dressed all in a hurry, and then we swallowed some breakfast hastily whilst a fly was being got for us. I had perforce to satisfy my curiosity from my own inner consciousness— Lady Molly was too absorbed to take any notice of me. Evidently, the chief knew what she had done and approved of it. The telegram from Measures pointed to that. My lady had suddenly become a personality. <laughs> Dressed very quietly in a smart, close-fitting hat, she looked years older than her own age, owing also to the seriousness of her mine. Mine? M-I-E-N? Mine. Uh, a person's look or manner, especially one of a particular kind indicating their character or mood. Ooh, I like that. Which, right. which absolutely makes sense so in the context. Is, she is sassed up and ready to be famous. Because she's like, yeah, I solved this and I know the newspapers are going to take my picture. I'm about to go grill this bitch. It's time. <laughs> she's like, I'm about to be famous. Let's do this shit. The fly took us to nine score fairly quickly. At the little police station, we found measures awaiting us. He had Elliot and Pegram from the yard with him. They had obviously got their orders, for all three of them were mightily deferential. <laughs> <laughs> 
The woman is Mary Nichols, right enough, said Measures, as Lady Molly brushed quickly past him. The woman who was supposed to have been murdered. It's that silly, bogus paragraph about the infant brought her out of her hiding place. I wonder how it got in, he added blandly. The child is well enough. That was the longer of the two telegrams she sent. Yep. I wonder, said Lady Molly, <laughs> whilst a smile. The first I had seen that morning lit up her pretty face. I suppose the other sister will turn up too presently, rejoined Elliot. Pretty lot of trouble we shall have now if Mary Nichols is alive and kicking who was murdered at Ash Court, say I. I wonder, said Lady Molly with the same charming smile. Then she went in to see Mary Nichols. The Reverend Octavius Ludlow was sitting beside the girl, who seemed in great distress, for she was crying bitterly. Lady Molly asked Elliot and the others to remain in the passage whilst she herself went into the room. I followed behind her. When the door was shut, she went up to Mary Nichols and assumed a hard and severe manner. She said, "'Well,' You have at last made up your mind, have you, Nichols? I suppose you know that we have applied for a warrant for your arrest? The woman gave a shriek, which unmistakably was one of fear. My arrest, she asked, for what? The murder of your sister Susan. T'wasn't me, she said quickly. Then Susan is dead, retorted Lady Molly quietly. Mary saw that she had betrayed herself. She gave Lady Molly a look of agonizing horror, then turned as white as a sheet and would have fallen had not Reverend Octavius Ludlow gently led her to a chair. It wasn't me, she repeated with a heartbroken sob. That will be for you to prove, said Lady Molly dryly. The child cannot now, of course, remain with Mrs. Williams. She will be removed to the workhouse, and... No, that she shan't be, said the mother excitedly. She shan't be, I tell you, the workhouse indeed, she added in a para... para... Oh, shit. Paroxysm? Paroxysm. 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 A sudden attack of violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. Paroxysm. That's a great Scrabble word. Yep. The workhouse indeed, she added in a paroxysm of hysterical tears, and her father a lord. The reverend gentleman and I gasped in astonishment, but Lady Molly had worked up to this climax so ingenuously that it was obvious she had guessed it all along and had merely led Mary Nichols on in order to get this admission from her. How well she had known human nature in pitting the child against the sweetheart. Mary Nichols was ready enough to hide herself, to part from her child even for a while in order to save the man she had once loved from the consequences of his crime. But when she heard that her child was dying, she no longer could bear to leave it among strangers. And when Lady Molly taunted her with the workhouse, she exclaimed in her maternal pride, "'The workhouse! And a father a lord!' Driven into a corner, she confessed the whole truth. Lord Edbrook, then Mr. Lydgate, was the father of her child. 
Knowing this, her sister Susan had for over a year now systematically blackmailed the unfortunate man. Oh, shit. So the sister was doing Was doing the blackmailing. Not, okay. So knowing this, her sister Susan had for over a year now systematically blackmailed the unfortunate man. Not altogether, it seems, without Mary's con, 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 Connivance? Connivance? Connivance. It's on a break again. Connivance. Willingness to secretly allow or be involved in wrongdoing, conniving. especially an immoral or illegal act. It's conniving. From the but same again, root she as has, conniving. She has like verb noun, like, yep. yes. In January last, she got him to come down to Ninescore under the distinct promise that Mary would meet him and hand over to him the letters she had received from him, as well as the ring he had given her, in exchange for the sum of, yes, 5,000 pounds. The meeting place was arranged, but at the last moment, Mary was afraid to go in the dark. Susan, nothing daunted, but anxious about her own reputation in case she should be seen talking to a man so late at night, put on Mary's dress, took the ring and the letters, also her sister's purse, and went to meet Lord Edbrook. What happened in that interview, no one will ever know. It ended with the murder of the blackmailer. I suppose the fact that Susan had, in a measure, begun by impersonating her sister gave the murderer the first thought of confusing the identity of his victim by the horrible device of burying the body in the slimy mud. Anyway, he almost did succeed in hoodwinking the police, and would have done so entirely but for Lady Molly's strange intuition in the matter. After his crime, he ran instinctively to Mary's cottage. He had to make a clean breast of it to her, as without her help he was a doomed man. So he persuaded her to go away from home and to leave no clue or trace of herself or her sister in Ninescore. With the help of money which he would give her, she could begin a life anew elsewhere. And no doubt he deluded the unfortunate girl with promises that her child would be restored to her very soon. Thus he enticed Mary Nichols away, who would have been the great and all-important witness against him the moment his crime was discovered. A girl of Mary's type and class instinctively obeys the man she once loved. The man who is the father of her child. The consent to disappear and to allow all the world to believe that she had been murdered by some unknown miscreant. Then, the murderer quietly returned to his luxurious home at Edbrook Castle, unsuspected. No one had thought of mentioning his name in context with that of Mary Nichols. In the days when he used to come down to Ash Court, he was Mr. Ludgate, and when he became a peer, sleepy out of the way, nine score ceased to think of him. Perhaps Mr. Lionel Lydgate knew all about his brother's association with the village girl. From his attitude at the inquest, I should say he did, but of course he would not betray his own brother unless forced to do so. Now, of course, the whole aspect of the case was changed. The veil of mystery had been torn asunder owing to the insight, the marvelous intuition of a woman who, in my opinion, 
is the most wonderful psychologist of her time. Oh, You know the sequel. Our fellow at the yard, aided by local police, took their lead from Lady Molly and began their investigations of Lord Edbrook's moments on or about the 23rd of January. Even their preliminary inquiries revealed the fact that his lordship had left Edbrook Castle on the 21st. He went up to town saying to his wife and household that he was called away on business and not even taking his valet with him. He put up at the Langdom Hotel. But here, police investigators came to an abrupt ending. Lord Edbrook evidently got wind of them. Anyway, the day after Lady Molly so cleverly enticed Mary Nichols out of her hiding place and surprised her into admission of truth, the unfortunate man threw himself in front of the express train at the Grantham Railway the Station. Fuck? Oh, shit! <laughs> I was not expecting that! Well, damn! Hello! At the Grantham Railway Station and was instantly killed. Human, Jesus. human justice cannot reach him now. But don't tell me that a man would have thought of that bogus paragraph or of the taunt which stung the motherly pride of the village girl to the quick and thus wrung from her an admission which no amount of male ingenuity would ever have obtained. The end. Oh my Fuck god! yeah. That was fucking fantastic! That was cool. Oh my god, I love that so much! Wait, this was written before, like... Sherlock Holmes and like yeah. any of the Agatha Christie's. Sherlock Holmes first appeared about 20 years before this story. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but I believe was still being, being done. Being, when, did, like, when did she first appear? When did Lady Molly first appear? This this is, I oh, believe, so this, this is, is her first beginning? appearance. Re- oh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, oh, so this whole book is like her story. So the because the, the next last... one's the next one's like although mind you, Lady Molly's methods are yeah. Yes, so this book is Lady Molly of Scotland Yard. This whole book is stories about her. Oh my god, I love her. Um, She's sassy. Can I play her the, in the movie, please? The yes, when I'm when I'm done writing it. Oh my I'll god, cast you. Um, I love her so much. So Sherlock Holmes. Uh, first appeared in 1887. Okay. And uh, his original Conan Doyle stories seem to run until about 1914. Okay. This book was published in 1910. So this book picks up right around the end of... The Sherlock Holmes thing. Okay. And then... Well, and then Agatha Christie wasn't... She was, like, big in the 20s. 20s and 30s. Was first published in 1920. Yeah. So, amazing. So, there is... So, I always assumed that, like, Agatha Christie, like, pulled directly from Doyle. but Which, I'm, clearly, she did a lot which of. Which, clearly, she did, but clearly she had... Uh, a very strong female like there's baroness orksy what a fucking badass thank you listeners for uh hanging out for that one um That's i know a long one. it was a little bit of a longer story than you're used to listening to we love you and we is it if you love us 
tell five friends about Campfire Classics because we're still doing that pyramid scheme. Yep. That ain't going away anytime yep. so soon. So that is, of course, your job. Listen to the episode, subscribe, write us a review, and then tell five friends. And if you want to go a step further, what you can do is kidnap those five friends and force them to subscribe and write us a review. Um, and then Lady Molly can can solve uh, the crime. Can solve the crime. <laughs> <laughs> and what's our what was the uh, the uh, callback we were going to use that you mentioned earlier in the episode? Oh, do you, do you want to make that the official? Secret code. I say why not. All right. So your official secret code for this episode is whatever the name of the Bennett sister that you would murder given the opportunity is. Mine's Lydia. Fuck that bitch. And her ribbons. Um. <laughs> yeah. Suck it, Jane Austen. Well, not Jane Austen. Suck it, Lydia. Suck suck it. Nah, I'm done. <laughs> and on that note. And on that note, also uh um uh, Mary, you are stupid. <laughs> oh, that's funny because Mary's one of the Bennett sisters. Wait. No. I think Mary is in Little Women. Oh, now, now I'm getting confused of all the giant sister family classic literature things. Anyway, fuck it. Mary, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So that's all from us. So until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Mary, you're stupid. Stupid! God, Mary! You know, there's something about Mary. There... <laughs>